testing, testing, one, two, three. This is my voice under the blanket. How does it sound now? Welcome back to The Willing Fool. I'm your host and lead fool, Paul Trimble. So glad you are joining. We are going to continue talking today about listening very well. And I want to give credit where credit is due. So the material I'm going to be going over is very directly taken from a fairly recent book by an author named Richard Hayes. The name of the book is Echoes of Scripture in the Gospels. So I don't want to present this information as if I came up with it or made all these connections. I definitely did not. Uh, Some of them I've heard of, but others of them, this was the first time I really was able to follow his lead in connecting the dots. But um, I I'm have no ego about that. I'm very happy to learn from other people who are very smart and great listeners and just trying to pass on what I've found of value there. So um, by all means, listen to this episode and the next ones, but also feel free, go and get that book, Richard Hayes, Echoes of Scriptures and the Gospels. And um, it's actually phenomenal. I'm not even done reading it. I still have more to read, but it's so dense um, that... I felt like I had to take a pause and just process some of the stuff that I am reading. Anyway, we're continuing to, as we read in the last episode, if you listened to the last episode, to try to listen well. And listening when it comes to the scriptures, and particularly the gospels, and we're going to zero in on the book of Mark, it's not necessarily the easiest thing. We have to even train our ears, be willing to listen differently than what might come naturally to us, because these uh, words that we're reading, the paragraphs, the um, chunks of scripture are simply rich and densely populated, richly soaked in other scriptures. And that's hence the title of the book, Echoes of Scriptures in the Gospels. Sometimes you have direct quotes. Other times you have allusions where it's, it's you know, a phrase or something that is going to conjure other scriptures and their context. And sometimes it's just a faint little echo, just a, a hint. And you have to really be paying attention to hear those hints. But if you do, just as Jesus urged us to re- listen very, very well, and the rewards for doing so are enormous, if you do, all sorts of riches and treasures are brought out in terms of what is being communicated with these references. So I'm going to start right with Mark 1, because The echoes of scripture start uh, pretty much straight away in the book of Mark. And uh, I'm going to read the very beginning here in Mark 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. And it goes on from there and describes John the Baptist baptizing people, saying he wore a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he's preaching someone more powerful than I is going to come. And this all precedes Jesus' baptism, which we might we might read in here in a moment. But here we have uh, not just a hint or an echo, but a direct quote from Scripture. And it's attributed to Isaiah. And in fact, it contains a portion of Isaiah uh, as well as at a portion from Malachi combined into this little paragraph. And so 
Look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. This is one of those things where it's worth it to take the time to actually look at what's being referred to and look at the context of those because more is being said than the simple words being quoted here. In fact, the context from those quotes is being brought into the forefront. So it's meant that when you hear this, you think, oh yeah, I know where that's from. And here's what's being addressed there. Here's what was going on there. And hmm, how does that apply now? So first I'm going to go to Isaiah 40 because that's the quote that is attributed. Isaiah 40 and verse 1 through 3. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and announce to her that her time of forced labor is over. Her iniquity has been pardoned and she has received from the Lord's hand double all her sins. A voice of one crying out, prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Make a straight highway for our God in the desert. Every valley will be lifted up. And it goes on from there. So this is what's quoted. This is a very important shift in the book of Isaiah. So there's lots of warning and woe and judgment in Isaiah 1 through 39. And here in Isaiah 40 is a big shift where the focus is more on comfort. The focus is more on all that is true. And yet God is saying, I want you to be comforted. I don't want you to remain in exile as this was the, this is the situation Israel was in. They were in exile, really the fruit of their own, their own choices, their own sins. And this was acknowledged pretty much across the board. And the idea was, man, God, you have this covenant with us. You are expected to to help us and rescue us and be at the center of our existence and help us flourish. And yet here we are in exile. And so prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Make a straight highway for our God in the desert. It's like make a path for God to return. We want God to return to Israel. We want the glory and presence of God to return to Israel. That's when we will be okay. That's when everything will be set right. So we want to prepare the way for the Lord. We want God to return, and that is going to signal and and be the key to us returning, in a sense, from exile, from our lowered position, our physical exile, the consequences of our sin. All of those things are kind of lumped together. So that's Isaiah. Now, if I skip ahead to Malachi, the other passage that's referenced, there's, there's actually a couple passages that we'll read that are closely connected This is Malachi uh, chapter 3 and chapter 4. I'm not going to read the whole chapters, but just a a chunk. So chapter 3 starts with, See, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And this is uh, God speaking. Then the Lord you seek will come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant you desire. See, he is coming. So once again, all about God returning, and there's this messenger coming before to prepare the way. So you should hear similar themes in there. Prepare the way, make a path. God's coming back. Prepare the way for him. Prepare the way for him. And in chapter four, verse five says, look, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So here you have a little bonus uh, because as John the Baptist is described, eating locusts and wild honey, camel's hair, leather belt, this is all imagery that is 
very closely related to Elijah, the great prophet of God in the, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. And so John the Baptist is in this role of Elijah. He's preparing the way. He's the messenger ahead. And who does John the Baptist prepare the way for? Well, John the Baptist in Mark chapter 1 directly prepares the way for Jesus. He says he, he's the one to come. He's the one that I'm preparing the way for. And so John the Baptist is in this Elijah messenger preparing the way role. Who does that mean Jesus is in the role of? If you put the scriptures together, that means Jesus is in the role of God. And so you hear here in these passages, Mark, without saying so directly, saying, here's Jesus. You've been waiting for God to return. He needs a messenger. He is the way prepared. Here's the messenger. Here's the way prepared. And he just says this thing about Jesus, but without saying it. And once again, you can ask yourself, why, why be oblique? Why be, um, why not just come out and say, Hey guys, here's who God is. This is what you need to know. That's probably how we might present it. But Mark doesn't do that. He uses story. He uses narrative. And he uses these references that were kind of a shared pool of understanding that everybody knew. Oh, messenger being prepared, the way being prepared, somebody coming to restore the fortunes of Israel. Oh, we know who that is. That's God. It's really amazing what can be said in so few words. In fact, right after those words about John the Baptist talking about Jesus coming, and he says, I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. It says, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. As soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. I take delight in you. Now, all kinds of imagery is going on here. You have waters. You have uh, the heavens being torn open. You've got the spirit hovering and descending. You've got God's voice. If you're familiar with Genesis 1, all of that should sound familiar. All of those components that I just mentioned should sound familiar because those are the components present at creation. And so you hear you have something like a, a reenactment or a new creation happening. And then, you are my beloved son, I take delight in you. There's all sorts of references here. There's a reference to Psalm 2, which was a very prominent messianic psalm about the Messiah to come. You have, I take delight in you, which is a reference to Isaiah, just like we read it, a different reference to Isaiah. This one's to Isaiah 42 about the servant. And then there's uh, hints or echoes of uh, Abraham and Isaac and the almost sacrifice of Isaac. It's in Genesis 22. So, so much is going on. That's, that's all in just, you know, really a handful of words. All that is being brought to bear and brought to the forefront. Uh, we've read actually through 11 verses. We didn't read all 11 verses. I think we read maybe about six, seven verses. And all those references are there. Now, I gave you the very, very short version. I could have unpacked each one of those um, quite a bit more and longer. But Mark is intending intentionally to bring all of that context to the forefront, into your mind, into your heart, as you look at Jesus, as you think about who Jesus is. It's supposed to be right there with you. Now, 
because we did not grow up in this culture, we weren't saturated in these scriptures, listening to them from birth and meditating on them and memorizing them. That isn't usually true for us. So we might rely on somebody telling us, like me relying on this author to point all of these out. And some of them I've heard before, others of them I haven't, or it's just helpful to hear them again. And, and so I have to work extra hard to bring these things into my mind, into my heart as I'm looking and reading about Jesus. And even for me to see what Mark is saying about Jesus, if I don't know or learn about these things, I can't really even see and evaluate what is Mark actually saying? What picture is he trying to paint or what case is he trying to make? Um, and so it'd be hard for me to, I don't know, feel very, um, very confident accepting what's being said, rejecting what's being said, having a strong opinion about what's being said, if I don't even understand in the first place what's being said. That may sound like a very, very simple point, but it's the same one I, I'm kind of making over and over because I think it's it's very relevant to us. So in chapter two, it goes on, and I won't belabor this one as long, but it goes on and, and Jesus has this incident where he forgives somebody's sins. And the people there are saying, well, who, who can forgive sins but God alone? And I'm not going to reference any particular uh, Hebrew Bible passage about God forgiving sins. But you can kind of imagine, like, it's just understood through a plurality of scriptures that God is the one who actually forgives sins. And so when Jesus forgives sins, once again, it's something that's happening and Mark's relaying what's happening in a way that shows us, the reader, the listener, who Jesus is without didactically, explicitly saying who Jesus is. But it is being said, but in a way different than we might say it or expect to hear it. I'm going to go through one more. This is Mark 4, an incident where there is a storm. Jesus is with his disciples. The disciples are scared, and they ask Jesus to do something about it. So Mark chapter 4, verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he told them, let's cross over to the other side of the sea. So they left the crowd and took him along since he was already in the boat. Other boats were with him. A fierce windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking over the boat, so that the boat was already being swamped. But he was in the stern, sleeping on the cushion. So they woke him up and said to him, Teacher, don't you care that we're going to die? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Silence, be still. The wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Then he said to them, Why are you fearful? Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified and asked one another, who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. So if you're reading this at first glance, you might just think, oh, I guess this is just a cool miracle or something intended to prove how powerful Jesus was and that he was who he says, says he was and he's got superpowers. Well, I mean, that is one way to take it. But once again, there's a lot of hints and echoes of scriptures here in this passage and to really get the picture that's being painted, it, it helps to read them and bring them into focus. So one of them, um, there's actually several, many, but I'm just going to read one for now, is in Psalm 107. Let me read here. Psalm 107, starting in verse 23. Others went to sea in ships, conducting trade on the vast waters. They saw the Lord's works his wonderful works in the deep. He spoke and raised the tempest. 
that stirred up the waves of the sea. Rising up to the sky, sinking down to the depths, their courage melting away in anguish. Did you hear something reflecting the disciples' courage melting away in anguish? They reeled and staggered like drunken men, and all their skill was useless. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. Sounds familiar. And he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a murmur, and the waves of the sea were hushed. They rejoiced when the waves grew quiet. Then he guided them to the harbor they longed for. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his faithful love and his wonderful works for all humanity. Let them exalt him in the assembly of the people and praise him in the council of the elders. So just to state sort of the basic observation here, in the passage we read with the disciples growing fearful, calling on Jesus to save them, and Jesus hushing and calming the waves, Jesus is doing exactly what, in this psalm, God is doing. And that connection is not meant to be lost on us. Now, I will say this is not the only passage by a long stretch that talks about things like God having control over the waters, God ordering the waters, what to do, where to go, where to stop. It's actually repeated uh, Job 38, Psalm 89, Psalm 65. Of course, Genesis 1, Job 26, uh, Psalm 106. Um, I'm going to read one more passage that has a point of connection here, and this is Isaiah 51. I'm turning in real time there. Isaiah 51, verse 9. Wake up, wake up, put on the strength of the Lord's power. Wake up as in days past, as in generations of long ago. Wasn't it you who hacked Rahab to pieces, who pierced the sea monster? Wasn't it you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the seabed into a road for the redeemed to pass over? And so here you have two elements of what we just read. Maybe it doesn't sound like a direct quote, and it's definitely not. It's more that echoes idea. But God having control over the sea, and in this case also the monsters that inhabit the sea, and wake up, wake up, we we need you to rescue us. We need you to rescue us from the chaos, from danger and drama. And so both of these elements incorporated in the, the passage in Mark 4. And just a little side thing, Rahab here um, is a creature of the sea who is chaos producing and monstrous. And also Rahab comes to, in other passages, uh, refer to Egypt and Pharaoh. Um, and so God conquering Rahab has hints not only of just God conquering chaos and bringing order and goodness, but also God specifically conquering that particular agent of chaos and danger of, of Egypt and Pharaoh and ushering the Israelites out. So here you have elements, again, Jesus in this role that heretofore was a role that's understood. This is the role that, that God does. These are the kinds of things that God does. And what do the disciples say? What do they say? It's this typical thing that uh, Mark reflects them saying, who then is this? Even the wind and sea obey him. And so it's a great example of Mark not saying, here's who Jesus is. He just has the disciples saying, who is this? He's doing this and this and this. And it's up to you. It's up to me to think, oh, I know why they're saying that. I know what they're thinking because 
yeah, we know who does these things. We know who calms the wind and the waves. We know who to call out to for help in the situation. We know it because, again, there's this shared understanding, all these references in the, in the background that we are meant to call forth. And we may need help calling it forth, but they're there. And the connections are there to be made. So we'll keep going um, with a few more examples in the next episode, but just want to give you a taste how much can be packed into a few words or a few sentences, so much context and so much can be said without being said explicitly. It's up to us to piece together and to see what picture is being painted and to listen well. So that's it for this time. Thanks for joining me and I'll see you next time.